You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. And here we are, Martin, on our 50th episode. Who would have thought? Yeah, it's certainly a very auspicious day, um, Carl, isn't it? And a, a big milestone, actually, when we set out on this journey. I don't think either of us knew exactly how, how long we'd be doing this, how much ground we'd cover, who, who all the people were, would be that we'd talk to. But it feels really exciting to have reached the, the big five zero and to have had so many exciting conversations with so many people in the sector. And to have such an exciting guest today to really celebrate this um, this landmark occasion. Well, I think this, the guest today is very symbolic of um, the growth and evolution of the podcast itself. So, you know, we started out lo- looking for the voice of the industry and looking to to identify common themes and support and, and help and explore as we, as we have. But I, I wouldn't have envisaged at that point that we'd be talking to Michael Crow today uh, in this this podcast. Well, I, I certainly didn't see it coming. I mean. We we started off, as you say, talking to people that were practitioners in the sector. We talk, we've talked to students, we've talked to employers of graduates, we've talked to people that used to hold very significant roles and are now able to look back on their experience. But we've also then, over those 50 episodes, talked to an awful lot of current vice-chancellors and presidents of institutions in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, the UK. But to have someone who's widely regarded as both the, the leading innovator in, in higher education leadership in the US system, and from that platform, um, a, a global reputation is, is a really exciting point to have reached. And it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's for me exciting not only because of who he is and um, where he's come from, but the things that he has to say and the, the point of contrast that that has with some of the conversations that we've been able to have up until now with people in their circumstances but also building on the pointers that have come out of all of our episodes to date it look normally i don't i don't look i don't profess to know too many of the speakers prior to your interview i guess i should say um in this instance i had heard of michael crow largely around his work around conscious capitalism and the ability to look outside of the sector uh, and make decisions based on the sector um, really reflective of um, society. You know, it's one of the things that he's, he's always sort of reflected on is where are we now as a species? How do we then support us as, a, as, a hum, as human beings moving forward? And then let's position higher education for that first and foremost before we start looking at some of the, the greater complexities. Well, I, th- I, th- I think it's really um, interesting that you should pick up on that sort of very strong sense of social conscience and social justice behind Michael's work. And, but the other thing that's really distinctive about, about Michael and interesting from this episode is we've seen a lot of pointers from the ed tech um, and big tech sector coming into this 50th episode, Carl, about forthcoming transformation and disruption. Michael's a great example of, of a university leader that's worked in really close partnerships with some of those practitioners with that mm. element of technology. And aligning the use of technology with with serving social conscious and social justice objectives in the higher education sector is a beautiful combination. Absolutely. Why don't we have a listen to what Michael has to say just after this short break? 
While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Our guest today on HEDEX is Professor Michael Crow, who has led Arizona State University in Phoenix as its 16th president since 2002. He's guiding its transformation into a model becoming widely known as the New American University, and more recently as a university of the fifth wave. He joined Arizona after 10 years spent at Columbia University in New York, culminating in the role of executive vice provost, and is widely respected as one of the most innovative, bold, and influential of global university presidents. He's led ASU to be rated the most innovative US university by US News and World Report for seven consecutive years. Michael, it's a real honor and pleasure to have you with us here and welcome to HEDEX. Happy to be here, Martin. Appreciate the time to get together. Michael, I wonder if you can start off. That, that's quite a staggering accolade and achievement. I, I wonder if you can help us understand how did ASU get to be rated the most innovative U.S. university for seven years running. And, and how important is achieving that ranking, both to you personally in your role, but, but also to ASU and its mission as a university? Well, I mean, I think the way the, the, what's, what's happened is that there's a, a few universities that have broken out of the norm. Uh, they're able to scale, enhance outcomes, have broader and deeper social impact uh, affect uh, the, the rates of, uh, of, of learning enhancement and learning outcomes, you know, all those kinds of things. And, and so we, we are seen by many as the leader of that. Um, uh, and so, you know, for us, it's, it's, you know, innovation has become a central, a central mechanism by which the institution's social impact is accelerated. So we realize that without accelerating innovation rates and adoption of new ways of doing things, our social impact will remain static. Uh, and so if you want to increase all the things that people talk about for higher education, you have to accelerate uh, the rate of innovation. How important is it to us? We don't, we don't pursue the, the ranking or the accolade. You know, we, it just ends up being that way. Uh, you know, we've brought in more than 300 technologies, married them into our learning platform. Everything that we're doing is core to our faculty on campus that, that then allows us to do more things uh, beyond the campus and the projection of our of our teaching and learning assets. And so it's important. Uh, uh, it's it's a part of our culture change and a, a lot of people can see it. One thing I sense that you do pursue from from reading about you coming into this interview is this concept of accessible or inclusive excellence. And um, I was only recently reading an LA Times article from just April this year. Um, which carried the story of growing rates of exclusion by other universities, by the University of California and its various campuses, by California State University institutions, all in your neighboring state. And the story reported on your response to this being um, to launch an ASU campus on the ground in LA, as I understand it, as a local base for online programs that offer accessible opportunity to qualified students who've been delivered rejection letters from those other campuses. I wonder if you can tell us what's the significance of this move into on the ground in LA for, for both ASU and perhaps you might, you, know, you might see implications for your competitors. 
And does this, in, in essence, illustrate the distinction between your strategy of accessible excellence and that of what you've termed exclusive excellence that your competitors pursue? Well, at, at the heart of our design is this notion of how do you build academically excellent, highly competitive university faculties who can uh, do what any other university faculty can do, can write grants and perform grants and create you know, new, new ways of thinking artistically or creatively. How do you build a faculty that does that? And at the same time, not limit access to the institution unnecessarily. So what's happened in many institutions is that they cannot under any circumstance scale. And because they can't scale, they have to constantly be raising their uh, admission standards. So if you took the 8 million people living in the United Kingdom uh, in 1775 and thought of Oxford and Cambridge and all of its colleges now serving you know, those 8 million people uh, as, as you know, outstanding colleges in a university cluster. And then the 65 to 70 million people living in the United Kingdom now, yes, there's lots of schools, but what's happened is that, is that we really haven't expanded higher education to accommodate massive social growth and social diversification. We just haven't done it. Uh, and, and so our basic model, the basic premise of our model is accessibility and excellence and impact of the institution all combined in one class of institution. So we're not suggesting that the other institutions go away because they can't scale, but we are suggesting that if you don't build something that does scale, then we're in for a world of underperformance and a world of economic instability and a world of social instability because so many people will not be able to have access to a great educational experience. So what we've done is we basically said, let's take the, some of the fundamental uh, 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 materials of Plato's Academy. Let's take some of the ideas of the University of Bologna or Oxford. Let's take some of the ideas from Harvard College and Harvard University. Let's take some of the ideas from other institutions and let's build a modern technologically enhanced university type which is focused on massive accessibility massive projection massive engagement but the faculty are still in charge of the thing they're still there it's still their ideas their content their pedagogy their research their scholarship now most people will tell you that's impossible hmm. well we're living proof that it's not impossible you know, we've taken our research funding levels to, you know, accelerating towards $800 million a year of research expenditures without a medical school, which is among the top 10 such institutions on the planet. Uh, we have uh, become, you know, a fantastic institution academically. And we've also gone in the time that I've been here from 45,000 degree seeking students to 150,000 degree seeking students in the same institution. Then to the LA thing, you know, we're not in the business of competing against the great public universities of California in an economy larger than, you know, uh, France or France's economy. The economy of California is larger than the UK economy. And they have they have 33 fantastic public universities uh, and 115 or 16 fantastic community colleges with millions of students. You know, we're, we're not competing against that, but we are in our new modality able to project technologically advanced learning systems that can allow people to have access to the universities that don't normally have access to the universities also, in addition to the students that we have here. So that is, so we've built a complete immersive environment that's as good as any immersive learning environment at any university in the world, uh, unbelievably diverse. And we also have 
hundreds of thousands of learners connected to it and uh, you know, almost 100,000 degree seekers connected to it at the same time. So in California, we're gonna be offering advanced technologically enhanced learning pathways for students that don't have access to higher education at quality. This, um, this idea of scale is fascinating to me because another article I read about your university and you earlier from, from this year was um, your launch of a program funded by a $25 million philanthropic donation to, to target 100 million learners worldwide. Um, by 2030, delivered in, as I understood it, up to 40 languages for programs in your School of Global Management, and your expectation that um, around 70% 70, 70 of those students might be female. Now, I, you may not have pick, picked it up, but our, our former education minister here in Australia raised eyebrows in our system last year by, um, by challenging our 40 different universities to collectively seek 10 million students enrolled online and offshore over the same period. That, that difference in ambition and scale of ambition for two goals such as six months apart is, is, is really apparent to me. And I wonder if that reflects in your mind the difference in the levels of ambition between ASU and some of its global competitors. A couple of things, Martin, that's, that, uh, that's important. A couple of points here. So first, we acquired the Thunderbird School of Global Management a few years ago. It's a 75-year-old institution with uh, tens of thousands of alums around the world. It was designed to produce a new kind of global thinker and global manager. Along the way, we then said, well, what can that school do to facilitate the acceleration of conscious capitalism, the acceleration of entrepreneurial spirit and entrepreneurial energy on the planet? The donor plus us, our investment is much larger than the $25 million. Uh, The donor and us coming together says, well, let's put together five or six courses put them in dozens and dozens of languages and make them freely available on a planetary scale, pushing them into countries like, like Iran and uh, other places that might not have access to, to these kinds of courses. And, and uh, let's make those courses available to everyone. Now, those are courses uh, that are not the same as being in college. So those are learning experiences at college or university grade, but they're, they're not for credit. And in that sense, they're empowering, they're enabling, they're learning outcomes, and they move you on the right path. Now, in addition to that, to the point that your, your minister was talking about, uh, you know, it's fair to say that within five years, we'll have, we, ASU alone, 200,000, give or take, degree-seeking students also pursuing degrees designed by our on-campus faculty and at least low millions of additional learners in addition to this. And so the, the notion about this technology thing is that if you do it right, you're no longer constrained by anything. And so, and, so, and so you can have many more people pursuing degrees at different points in their life. You can have people taking courses at different points in their life. And you can have these learners learning these business skills and business courses on a planetary scale. So we now are operating and we think that the, there is room uh, for many of these universities around the planet you know, any scale, any language, any culture, any location, any time, any pathway. Uh, technology now allows that. And I wouldn't imagine every university in Australia to take that up, but maybe one or two to take that up. Uh, you know, it, it could be Monash, which is already doing a lot of things. It could be other schools that are working in this kind of space. And what it does then is that it, it creates an accelerated economic development opportunity uh, on a large scale, and, and, and as well as a competitiveness opportunity for a country like the U.S., or Australia, because we're going to have many more pathways for people to enhance their, their learning outcomes than we had in the past. 
where does all this um, journey towards growth um, continue to and, and, and end up, Michael, in, in, for ASU? I mean, what, are, there, are there barriers to continuous growth and indeed uh, countering those? Are, what, what are the benefits of growth at this scale, at this pace, to a distinctive university like yours? Well, so, so we're, again, we're not saying this is what everyone needs to do. Uh, but we are saying that there's a new kind of university that we're a prototype of, and we call this a national service university, capable of building technologies, capable of serving as a national learning and teaching R&D laboratory, capable of scaling. And so are there limits to that? Certainly there's limits to everything. Uh, is there an infinite scale that can be approached by a single institution? No. Uh, is, there, is there a scale where maybe we end up with, you know, four times as many people as we could normally manage pursuing degrees, thus, you know, an unbelievable additional output, as well as uh, an almost unlimited number of learners, which are different than the people that are in degree programs, you know, could several universities take that on and serve sort of a national purpose, even helping other schools with technology and so forth and so on? We think yes. And so uh, we are a prototype. That's what the fifth wave means, what you mentioned at the introduction. The fifth wave is the emergence of discovery-oriented, creativity-driven, faculty-driven enterprises that have the capacity to scale at several times the normal scale. Otherwise, we'll be left with the need to build thousands of new colleges and universities just to accommodate the uh, educational attainment goals of an ever-learning uh, uh, consumptive population. It's not going to go down. It's only going to go up. So, you need some new type of institution, and we're the prototype for that in the United States. We were both recent visitors to Teddy London. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that. I was visiting that place just about a week after you were there recently. Okay. Um, which, as, as our, our listeners may know, is a collaborative venture you're pursuing with King's College and UNSW to develop some new approaches to global engineering education with, with, as I understand it, future plans that might embrace the need for engineers in Africa and South Asia. And I also recently saw you on an online conference on the program for the Salesforce Education Summit, where you were followed by Nobel Prize winner Malala. Um, and I wonder if it's too much of a simplification to say that you and ASU are on a bit of a mission to radically democratize higher education for the benefit of the world. Is that what you're trying to do? Well, it's, it's definitely about egalitarianism and democratization, without a doubt. So, so your accent sounds British. Uh, uh, and so I'll assume that uh, you you were raised in Britain or by British uh, British parents, and so so you come from the same heritage that I do. My family moved from England on my father's side in the 1640s to Maryland uh, from uh, Suffolk, and so the British system of higher education is unbelievably class empowered and unbelievably driven by uh, selectivity. Well, that has been mimicked in the United States to our own detriment. Now, it doesn't mean that we haven't gotten positive things from that. It doesn't mean that we haven't gotten positive outcomes of that. But the British model, which is inherited in the United States, that, that uh, the more people that apply and the fewer that you admit is a good thing, well, that doesn't really work across the scale of an, an, an entire society. And so, so what we've tried to do, and this is the basis of the excellence component of our model, a faculty as good as the faculty anywhere, empowered by unbelievable technological tools, empowered by a mission to be uh, not driven by exclusion, but driven by inclusion. This is, you know, we, we believe that what we're trying to evolve is 
the next version of a truly democratic university, the next version of a truly egalitarian university. So we set our admission standards to the university to be those that we feel are the necessary requirements to do the work. Everyone that meets those admission requirements is admitted. Those that can't meet the admission requirements for whatever reason are given a pathway to meet the admission requirements. They're given alternative pathways. Now, I'm not suggesting that you know, this is the rallying cry for the end of Oxbridge. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that Oxbridge is insufficient. So, so Cambridge and Oxford, just using them as an example, they are honors colleges for certain kinds of learners coming out of what we call high school in the United States. They are honors colleges and elite research institutions. So we are an, we are an elite research institution uh, uh, we have an honors college of over 8,000 students. And oh, by the way, on campus, we also have uh, another, another um, I don't know, 60,000 undergraduates in addition to those and another 100,000 plus students online in addition to all of that. So we are performing the Oxford Cambridge Honors College function. We're performing the research function. We have a faculty capable of delivering those two things and then beyond that, we've decided to take every tool that we have and every asset that we have and be as egalitarian as we possibly can be. So you know the three words driving the emergent Republic of France, which is still in its infancy. Even the US is still in its infancy. It is, I mean, we're still baby republics. I mean, people don't get this. And so, you know, equality, fraternity and liberty, uh, you know, that's the same in the United States. And, and we just haven't done a great job at that in higher education. We, we think that there's only a limited number of smart people. We think the smartest people go to certain schools that admit almost no one. And the fact they are very happy about that. They're very satisfied that everyone seems like them and looks like them and, and thinks like them and smells like them. And so, and so it's, just, it's just not the way that we're going to be able to move forward if we're going to move on a democratic scale at a species level. Inspiring stuff, Michael. And, and you've been quoted as saying that we need more differentiation, creativity, innovation and enterprise behavior to give presidents and chancellors meaning behind their title and value behind their elevated salaries. So presidents in the United States and, and, and I think in the UK, I don't know about Australia, but you know, they, may, they make even at public universities, they make very high compensation packages, very high. And so you don't get paid money as a prize. You get paid money to do the work <laughs> and to take chances and to make things happen. And so, and so what we need is you don't really require, you don't really need a president of an institution that's just a replication of an institution down the street. Every university should have its unique common core and then around that its unique core and then around that its, its unique mission. Every university should be uh, uh, differentiated. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're seriously limiting the totality of the human potential. Um, uh, we're just we're just limiting it. I mean, so so where are the whole new kinds of science, the whole new ways of thinking about things? And so we've done some of this here. So, you know, we started our College of Global Futures with in it a school of sustainability, a school for the future of innovation in society, a school for complexity management, a school for the future of the oceans. Uh, all of that is a differentiated approach. We started a new school. We did away with geology as a department, astronomy as a division, astrophysics as a division, astrobiology as a division, and we created a new school of earth and space exploration, 
a new school of social transformation, a new school of, of uh, social uh, advancement. You know, uh, all these things are new intellectual designs. And I just think there should be wild differentiation among and between universities. You're using the word should there a lot. Why aren't more universities differentiated and why aren't more university presidents taking that same bold approach of creativity and enterprise? I think there's a lot of explanations for that. I mean, university presidents are generally kept from being leaders by uh, faculty structures and uh, fundraising environments and political environments and so forth. So they're sort of triangulated out of taking on leadership roles. Again, if you're going to make these higher, higher salaries, you better take some risks uh, and, and, and see if you can make it. And I think the other thing as, in terms of the should phraseology is that, you know, it requires intellectual design. Intellectual design is hard. It's just easier to say, we're going to build another college. It's going to teach political science. It's going to teach chemistry. It's going to teach physics. It's going to do the same thing that all the universities do. It's just going to be the, I don't know, the University of of uh, South Central by Southwest Australia. I mean, and so it's just gonna be the next version of another public university. And so, so um, it's, it is unfortunate that we're not getting enough faculties who wanna be different and institutions that wanna be different because it would be better for everyone. Just as we move our interview to a close, Michael, it's been fascinating talking to you. And um, I presume this bold journey that you're on is one that you're not working on alone. And in a recent presentation to the ASU plus GSV summits, you identified, as I understood it, the capacity to develop and deploy educational technologies as key to university diversification differentiation. And that being the case, I wonder if you can explain to us how important it is to you to work with tech company partners in addressing these issues that we've covered concerning ASU's journey. Well, we we set up the ASU GSV EdTech Summit 13 years ago with a Silicon Valley partner called Global Silicon Valley GSV. The 13th year meeting was just held a few weeks ago in San Diego. We had 5,600 people there from 130 countries. We had 11,000 people also come in by internet. So 15,000 people at this meeting, hundreds of technologies, hundreds of deals, hundreds of interactions. Well, for 13 years, we've been building relationships with these companies. We now have 300 technological tools that we've acquired from these interactions that we've embedded into our institution that have allowed us to grow engineering, for instance, from 6,000 students to 27,000 students with unbelievable outcomes in the market for engineering. They've allowed us to eliminate, um, they've allowed us to do things in the humanities and in the arts and other areas that's just unbelievable. They allow us to manage large numbers of students in uh, digital learning environments. They've enhanced our learning outcomes on campus, doubled our four-year graduation rate. You know, all those things have been through these relationships. And so in general, you know, we're an anti, we're a highly innovative sector with highly innovative individuals who at the university level and the university uh, system level and at the university higher education ministry level, we're anti-innovation. <laughs> it's like a weird, 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 like a social nightmare kind of. It's like it's like a weird <laughs> nightmare to be in. I hope, um, I hope your journey of leadership hasn't been too much of a light nightmare from you. Uh, for you, it seems to me that you're having great fun and doing some great work. So my last question is one that I've asked every president and vice chancellor of universities in 50 episodes of this HeadX podcast. And I wonder if I can ask you if you're enjoying being a president at the most innovative American university in 2022 after, as I understand it now, almost 20 years in the role. Are you having fun? 
this this is the for me a died and gone to heaven role this is the most fantastic opportunity you get to be with these new waves of students who are unbelievable they are unbelievable what they're coming in what they're thinking how they're evolving the rate of social evolution the rate of uh modernization uh uh, the rate of understanding of complexity, the, the creativity of these students. Now match that with genius faculty members, match that with dedicated teachers, match that with an institution that really is now taken on a social purpose. Put all of that together and it is like unbelievable fun every single day. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of this and that. None of that stuff is meaningful. None of that stuff makes any difference. The stuff that makes a difference is you know, we now have a student body, for instance, that's that is as completely diverse as the population, socioeconomically and ethnically. And then you get to work at a place, you know, where you, you've got missions going to outer space and you're tying that into K-12 education. It's I can't think of anything more exciting than this. Sounds like you're living the dream rather than experiencing a nightmare to me, Michael. And um, yes. for sharing the the highlights and the and the essence of that journey with us and being our, our guest on on our HeadX podcast today. Thank you so much. I, n- I never realized coming into this that I was going to be interviewing a fellow descendant of Suffolk in the UK. But for being yes. <laughs> for being such a great guest of HeadX and for all of the wonderful work that you're doing at ASU, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah. Nice to see you, Martin. Appreciate it. So what do you think of that then, Carl? There's episode 50, our 50th guest on HeadX, Michael Crow of ASU. I could, it couldn't be better. Look, it's very frustrating for me in, in my career, particularly in the corporate sector. You know, we are always beholden to um, particular leaders, you know, leaders that a board has appointed more often than not. And the criteria for appointing leaders to this point in my mind anyway, is incredibly flawed. So it's largely on a um, run sheet of, of capability and, and where you've worked, really. So some of the things Michael said there really rang true for me in terms of the way forward. And the, we, we are really starting to see a big sort of transformation now in, in co- the corporate sector and just workplace in general, where the, the better leaders and those people who are the more well-rounded um, uh uh, empathetic leaders, those that can think outside the box, are clearly head and shoulders above traditional leaders. And so we're starting to see that, particularly all through tech. You know, you don't see the CEOs and the executive suite of tech firms these days. Um, they don't look anything like the executive uh, suite of a bank, for instance, and they perform very differently as a result. So some of the things Michael was saying there uh, around the responsibility and the way that leaders need to be doing things very differently and taking risks and being paid to take risks and paid to take um, take a, a big step forward into an explorative space based on knowing that it's the right thing for whatever that might be, whether it's the particular audience or future audiences, but it is a risk and it's unconventional. Um, that has to be the way forward. So I love the fact that he wasn't, you know, he didn't speak to the driving force behind why we have so many leaders doing the same thing all the time and not taking risks was essentially fear and I imagine, um, you know, protection of their own personal financial position and reputation, which is appalling. Um, but I think that is the reality. He, he said something in particular, which was, it's much easier to, you know, he said, it's much easier to. Now, that is what we see. I've seen that for 25 years in all the big organizations in Australia. It's much easier to, and guess what's coming? Do nothing. Or it's much easier, it's much easier to do exactly the same thing that I've been doing or exactly the same thing that my former leader did. That is not your job. As an executive leader or a board member or someone that's driving an organization forward, 
it's not about what's easier. It's about what's the right thing to do and get about get about doing it. Uh, it's, it's, it's really striking, isn't it? I mean, the, the distinctiveness of his approach, that, that quote of his about um, presidents and vice chancellors and chancellors needing to earn both their title and their, and their big, bigger salaries, is, that's pretty hard-hitting stuff. I mean, there's a lot of defensiveness about the, um, the, the pay of vice chancellors in the face of a lot of criticism from, from the outside world in Australia. But yes, I agree with you that they, they are big titles and they are appropriately remunerated as leaders of big organisations. And, and with that comes the expectation of being distinctive, having a go, doing something different. And it, for me, it was in, it's, it's even in the language that he uses about how he sees and perceives the purpose of Arizona State University. It's set up to in contrast to what other universities do, which is measuring themselves by who they exclude, we measure ourselves by how we inclu- who we include and how we support them succeeding. And how, how many times do you read a university website, read a strategy document from our sector, hear a, hear a sector leader talk about what they see as the goal of their university, and it sounds just like what they've always done and just like what everyone else is seeking to do. Whereas a point of departure of, bit of setting out to be distinctive is a really brave, is a really bold, but probably a, a required and necessary thing for all leaders to contemplate what their difference is going to be. I think also he's not doing it for competitive advantage. He makes it very clear this isn't about him or it's not about being competitive necessarily. It's, he, he's taking a much broader worldly view here to say population growth is, has meant that we can't actually service the education requirements of the species right now based on the current structure. So what can we do about that? And also the anti-elitism that he speaks to, not necessarily in that language, but that has to be good. We, 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 the world will be better off if there are more educated people in the world. That's the mission. So if we're continuing to handpick, and in his language, you know, there's organizations that, that, uh, that um, take in basically no one, you know, is what he said. And if when they do, they all look the same and there's a sameness to them. Um, you know, that whole group think thing comes to mind for me. And also the ability for the you know, less privileged, less entitled individuals and socioeconomic groups to be able to be informed to an extent that they're making better decisions for one another as a community and the planet has to be the, uh, the, the go-to. And that's where he's heading. It's an audio um, interview, so you can't see... You can't see what's going on 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 the screen when you when you replay it as a podcast. But for me, doing the interview with Michael and seeing seeing his eyes light up when a couple of different things when he talked about the diversity of his student body now matching the diversity of the student body of the population. That that is such a great achievement and such a, an out of step with most of the history and most of the other practices of universities. And you're absolutely right. He's not seeking to, uh, to to gain a competitive advantage in seeing that his is the only way forwards. He sees ASU and its model as complementary to what he describes as the honours colleges of the more selective institutions. But for him and his values and his purpose and his mission to match that diversity that he sees in the general population boy did his eyes light up when he described that to me and then when I used the line that occurred to me in researching the episode of him being on some sort of mission to democratize global higher education 
you, you can tell when you've played someone's words back to them in a way that really resonate with them and make them feel that they've been heard. Again, that that was such a, a, a light a lighthouse moment for me in that interview of him really feeling that he was being heard and understood for what his real purpose is. He wants to bring higher education to the benefit of all because he sees it at, at a species level as being a really important thing for maintaining global social cohesion. These are so much loftier ambitions than wanting to go up 50 places in the rankings. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a real breath of fresh air for us to, to hear someone speaking like that about their role, their responsibility and impact in society. Uh, I really hope that we start to see a lot more of that. I know we've seen from our own experience in Australia um, leaders that aren't necessarily as bold in their ambitions and some that are, in my my opinion, I know we might differ in this mountain, but I, I've seen the, the leadership be quite weak in certain parts, particularly around key issues, um, some of which we are you know, right in the front foot of at the moment. So I'd love to see a little bit more um, you know, serious uh, dedication and commitment to doing the right thing. And regardless of their own station, you know, regardless of what does this mean for me, it's, it's really what it's going to mean for you is that you've fulfilled your, your, um, your obligation. Your obligation here, to his point, is about taking risks, doing the right thing for the organisation and for society as a whole. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's certainly got a very clear sense of that responsibility, hasn't he? But the other thing that, took, that I was drawn by in, in hearing him describe um, the, the strategy that he's following and the very eloquent way he writes about it and presents about it is that he's also, whilst being very innovative as an academic leader, he's very much an academic's academic in many ways. I mean, he's, he, he, it, we're not talking here about someone coming out of sector from the financial or, or tech world or financial services or, or, you know, other sectors and applying innovative business thinking to a sector that they don't understand and they're not part of. This, this is a man who's, you know, done a PhD in the East Coast USA and worked at Columbia for 10 years, one of our more prestigious and probably one of the more conservative institutions who completely sees the, 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 the importance of, of knowing and celebrating the academic faculty of his university, but in the way that he describes it, unleashing their potential. He had those lovely express, expressions of saying that what is so common in universities is that you've got really innovative people doing really innovative work, but the entity is what they tend to be some of the most uninnovative entities that you can find anywhere. Well, his job as an academic leader, as he sees it, is to unleash that potential and really realise the benefits of that innovative capacity by making the organisation more innovative himself with, with what he sees as what he can bring to it of, of intellectual thinking about what the university can be. That, that's a beautiful expression. I haven't heard so many of our other 49 guests up until now who are all largely, hugely capable intellectual leaders Talk about uh, applying their intellectual capacity to develop the development of their institutions, and uh, and you, you've said there that you might you might have some critical thoughts about our leaders. My, my, my view is that I'd I'd like to encourage them all to use their great intellectual capacity to be even more bold in thinking about more innovative ways. In that the forty universities in Australia 
can reach their own distinctiveness, can fulfil the, the passion and the purpose that's behind their leaders and their academic communities to really bring about change in democratising and improving the effectiveness of higher education in this country. In terms of being critical, I think there are particular individuals that need to do better, to be frank. But I also think Michael makes a very good point here where he says uh, leaders are in some part being... Um, Restricted, or they're not having an opportunity to lead because of what they're surrounded uh, surrounded by, either legacy systems or the council or the particular politics involving the particular university. Very difficult. So, for a leaders looking to be more innovative and take bolder steps forward, I mean, it, it's not just about them making a decision, is it? It's about how do they start shifting the systems in which they live within. Well, there's and there's two dim dimensions to that. I think, Carl, is the systems of the context that they operate in, the the political com com context the um, regulatory context and I know that Michael puts a lot of effort into that in building relationships with the Arizona state government and with um, the network and, and, and the community of, of, of academic leaders to make sure that he's unleashing and, and releasing some of the barriers but there's also the systems in which universities operate and one of the great successes of the Arizona State University story is that not only do we have this conventional academic doing really innovative things harnessing the power of other academics but he's doing it with brilliant partnerships with tech companies and you know uh, he, he mentioned that there's hundreds of tech companies that they've been working with over a sustained yeah. period of time building the world's most innovative technological pedag pedagogical platform well we, we, we've had this on so many of other of our um, episodes to date and I think it's going to be a big focus to us going forward of Thinking optimistically and with glass half full, more and more Australian universities, I think, can develop more distinctiveness and more innovation and be more bold through the actions of their leaders if they find ever more purposeful ways of working with out-of-sector technology and innovation companies that can help them in that journey. And I think we're going to see an awful lot more of that following Michael's lead. I'd like to see the door being a little bit more than just a jar generally to outside thought. You know, that, that's not just for this sector, but that's also the big end of town where I work is, you know, we have, uh, you have preferred partners and you have preferred ways of doing things, but you don't know what's coming and you're missing out. You know, we know, Martin, I know you and I have conversations with, you know, tech companies and ed tech all day long, and I am perpetually amazed at what's coming, what's happening and their ability to start evolving and how they can add real value to um, organisations, be it universities or otherwise. So the door has to be open. They need to be receptive to people they haven't met before, different ways of doing things, different relationships. And that might mean setting up a system where they vet some of that to some extent, but I really think having an open mind to what's coming is going to be the hallmark of those organisations that perform better. Again, completely agree. I mean, Michael had a lovely turn of phrase again of the, the, the summits that is sent up between his university and the Silicon Valley community of trying to harness the innovation of other corporates that may or may not already have interest in his sector. He, he described it as, look, this is where we're trying to go on a journey as a university. This is what we want to do. These are the experiences we want to create for our students and for our staff. You're the smart people out there with all of the technology and the innovative capacity. What can you do to help us make this possible? That's open-mindedness. That's an invitation to an engage. That's an invitation to partnership. And it's quite different from the way that a lot of universities approach what's, what's often seen as underinvestment in technology and innovation, 
by appearing to feel that they know all the answers and specify the needs rather than engaging with leading thinkers in, in exploring what's possible. There was a really good sense of that in the 20-year the journey of Michael Crow at ASU. To that point, Martin, uh, I think you know this being our 50th episode, there's, there could be no better guest to epitomise what we're about here at HeadX, which is changing higher education for good. Oh, I love that strap line that we've used, I think, from the very first episode on this podcast, Carl, and ever since we've started a journey with HeadX, because it's beautiful the way that it means different things to different people, isn't it? And we've had a different um, interpretation of what for good means in terms of change in our sector from Michael there today that I think is inspiring and others should follow. But what we've very clearly seen is that we've got someone here that very much is driving change and driving change in a very positive direction, working with others for the benefit of, of the learner community, for the better of betterment of the future of higher education. And yes, I, I, I agree. This is a perfect el- illustration and epitomizes the, the feeling of changing higher education for good. That's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Carl.